FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today from Arizona in the USA is one of my most favourite people in the world, Dr. Lise Alshaw. Lise is a naturopathic doctor with board certification in naturopathic oncology and who's been practising since 1994. She maintains a naturopathic oncology practice out of naturopathic specialists in Scottsdale, Arizona. Lise works as an independent consultant in the area of practitioner and consumer health education. She's so famous that the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians recognised Lise in 2014 as Physician of the Year. Lise also received an honorary degree from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine and the Joseph Pizzorno Founders Award from Bastia University in the same year. She's currently the president of the Oncology Association of Naturopathic Physicians, that's OncAD. Learn more about this at www.drlees.net. She's the executive director of TAP Integrative, a non-profit educational resource for integrative practitioners. Lees is the co-author, along with Carolyn Gazella, of The Definitive Guide to Cancer and The Definitive Guide to Thriving After Cancer, texts which anyone who either wants to care for or just those who wish for the evidence regarding natural medicines need to read. Indeed, I would say that the definitive guide for cancer is a seminal text that should be inclusive in all naturopathic courses. She co-created 5tothriveplan.com and Lee's hosts a radio show, 5 to Thrive Live, on the Cancer Support Network about living more healthfully in the face of cancer. And I warmly welcome you back to FX Medicine. Lee's, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Andrew. Delighted, as always, to be talking with you, my favourite Australian. How's that? <laughs> you only know one. No. <laughs> <laughs> now I've I've got to be I've got to say I've been baiting you over the last few months with beautiful um, pictures from the the beach the local beach where I live yeah, in on the Gold have. Coast yes because we have hardly had a winter it's been absolutely spectacular here how's Arizona you know it's uh, we've had a hot summer in Arizona but we've also had really lovely rains where I live there is quite a good monsoon season so we get some beautiful rains that come in and so it's actually quite green and our weather's just now turning to a nice perfect temperature during the day so have to say quite lovely over here. Yeah and you've recently come back from California so you've been enjoying the California sunshine I would imagine. Yes it was beautiful out there as well you know they're still in this prolonged drought so they're pretty dry out there but um, and it was hot but yeah beautiful area beautiful part of the world for sure. Now, it, it's a bit of a loose segue into what we're going to be talking about today, but I want to discuss <laughs> telomeres. And I guess where I was going with, there with the, the sort of variance in the climate is 
what happens with telomeres because I, I feel like an absolute dunce with this. I think I've got it and then something else comes out and then up, ah, that throws it out the window. So I think we have to first ask or answer for our listeners, what exactly are telomeres? Well, I just have to say that when you asked if I would like to talk about telomeres, I jumped at the chance because I think these are some of the most fascinating parts of our you know, DNA structure. And we don't really know. We're learning still. We, they were just discovered in the 1930s, and then they just nobody really did anything about them because they were considered to be non-replicating parts of our DNA, so they weren't of interest. And it wasn't until the 1960s that we discovered that actually, because they didn't replicate, they must serve a function. And in fact, the opposite was happening. They, every time the cell divides, the, these telomeres, which are, I think of them as protective caps that kind of squish on the end of each uh, end of your chromosome so that they're protective caps. And each time your cell divides, a little bit of that telomere chunks off and they get shorter and they get progressively shorter and shorter with each cell division. And it's thought there's about, you know, average cells have about 50 cell divisions in our lifetime. And then the telomeres are so short that the chromosomes become very unstable. And with that instability, the cell initiates the process of apoptosis or programmed cell death so that it's really the telomeres that control the lifespan of our cells. And therefore, when that happens, you know, progressively as we go through this life, uh, enough of our cells will no longer have telomeres left to support them that we start to lose, you know, greater and greater quantities of cells. And eventually we will reach the end of our lifespan. So they really are at the very heart of our mortality, which is just so fascinating. But when you say they're a cap, it's not just the end. It's sort of the end sequences, right? It's not just the the very end. It's it's the sort of end region. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, the the telomere itself is a double-looped structure, and it's made up of proteins and RNA, and they kind of loop around the end of the chromosome, literally stabilizing it. So... Um, so they're not, you know, they're not like a cap that fits over the chromosome, but they really do serve the function that you would think of if you thought of them as a cap, because they, uh, that structure prevents, it builds in a lot of stability, structural stability into the chromosomes, literally enabling those chromosomes to withstand all of that tension that happens during cell division without becoming kind of destroyed in the process. And, um, you know, so then, as I said, as each cell division event happens, they get shorter and shorter, although that's not totally true. Mm, it's not exactly is... like that because there's this enzyme that, that has been discovered even more recently. I think maybe you've known about telomerase yep. for probably 40 years or 30 years, and telomerase is an enzyme whose job it is to build back length on the telomeres. And because of telomerase, the the length of the telomeres over our lifespan is somewhat dynamic. And this is where it gets really interesting, and I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about this, but what we now know is that many of the behaviors of our lifestyle, going from sleep habits to exercise to certain nutrients, affect the activity of telomerase and therefore in turn affect the length of the telomeres, which means that we actually influence the stability of our chromosomes and therefore our lifespan 
through our, our lifestyle habits. Now, now this is where, as you said, you know, I thought, oh, shortening's bad and lengthening is good, but then there were some instances where in certain cancers there were a, was a lengthening of the telomeres. Is that right? And there was this... Is it, has it got to do with stability or is it got to do with what happens during the um, the lengthening, the shortening, the adjustment, if you like, of the cap, dare I say the word? Yeah, so I, th- I think the way to, to understand this is from a chronology standpoint. So we know a couple of things. We know that if telomeres are abnormally short, then your risk of cancer of developing cancer is significantly higher. There's about a threefold increase in the risk of cancer if you have short telomeres. So threefold, that's a 200% increased risk mm. of cancer. And if you are diagnosed with cancer, among people diagnosed with cancer, those with the shortest telomeres have a twofold increased risk of dying from their cancer. So we know that abnormally short telomeres increase the risk of cancer, which makes sense because those shortened telomeres are a sign that that chromosome, the chromosomes in, the, in that cell are unstable, right. which means that the DNA is more prone to mutation. There's more likely to be this process called aneuploidy, which is where the chromosomes get kind of stuck to each other during cell division and shear off and odd bits. And so all of that kind of makes sense. But to your point, there's this other phenomenon that happens further down the line. Once a tumor has uh, begun, so that we've gone past the right. carcinoma in situ stage, we've gone past the you know beginning to get invasive characteristics, and we really are truly into the tumor genesis part of cancer. When we're at that point of cancer, there is a phenomenon that we see, which is one of the ways in which cancer gains its so-called immortality is that it upregulates its telomerase enzyme. So in these very mutated cells, um, they compensate, if you will, for the the instability that is invariably present in malignant cells by upregulating telomerase, adding length back to those telomeres, and therefore gaining stability. So it is true that upregulated telomerase, longer telomeres are characteristic of cancer once it's set, but from a prevention standpoint, we really want long, healthy telomeres. Right. So this that is, sense. this is where I get confused in this chronology. People with short telomeres have not just an increased risk, but a, 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 an increased risk of a, a worse prognosis um, of cancer. Right. But right. once you have a tumor inside you, some cancers, as my understanding, will increase will or will use that. Um, t- those telomeres to um, aid their immortality. So where yeah. is the chronology of the short telomere prognosis issue and the long telomere um, in the tumor? Well, and like, I think another another way to maybe clarify this is to think about it regionally too. Because so short telomeres kind of across the board throughout the body. Yep. Shortened telomeres, abnormally shortened telomeres. Oh, right. That Cells throughout the body don't work well. So your lymphatic cell, your immune right. cells don't work very well. You're, you know, you don't have good cell repair throughout your body. Your epithelial basement membrane integrity to keep things where they're supposed to be, those cells don't work very well. So yeah. it's kind of a universal phenomenon. 
Now, this is where it gets interesting because in the case of malignancy, what we have happening is within the cancer cells themselves, there's a constitutive upregulated telomerase. So the tumor cells have figured out a way to turn on their telomerase and add length back to their telomeres to compensate for all the instability that is invariably present within malignant cells. That happens at the same time, or can happen at the same time as the within the rest of the body. Telomerase is not upregulated in healthy cells. In fact, it's kind of downregulated because perhaps the various lifestyle factors, and so telomeres are abnormally short everywhere else. So the worst sort of combination of events is abnormally short telomeres throughout the body and upregulated telomerase within tumors, making cancer cells telomeres abnormally long. Gotcha. Now, here's another one that I've just only just like looking at the other day, and that was telomerase reverse transcriptase or TERT, which is sort of, is it a subunit of telomerase or, or it's sort of part of the telomerase and that's part of the sort of cancer role? Is that right? Yeah, you know, there's there's some really interesting research now going on into TERT, and I actually don't know very much about the role of TERT specifically, but I know that there is, um, from what I understand anyway, that there's um, different ways to both up and down regulate telomeres. So I think some of the interest now is, is there a way we could turn off tel- telomerase right. in malignant cells? And, um, you know, of course, everything within oncology is now getting focused on to very targeted drugs. So I think the idea ultimately behind that concept is can we develop a drug that will down, will turn off that telomerase, thereby kind of letting these cancer cells stay very unstable, making them highly susceptible to any other oxidative insult, likely chemotherapy or whatever the case might be. Mm. But what, what I, I mean, you know, I, I see an inherent danger there is that you, if you're turning off if you're trying to target turning off the the telomerase in the tumor cell without affecting telomerase in the body, you're gonna run into <laughs> some crossover there. But what I think is interesting is I like I just touched on this. Forgive me, I can't remember where I read it, but but they were looking at things like um, vitamin A derivatives and things like catagen derivatives, like from green tea. So I think this is a very interesting area where natural medicine might play a part at the very least in supporting the medicine and potentially having a a role on its own. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, what's so interesting is that there are a lot of, um, a lot of compounds and ways in which we can influence telomerase. And I think, you know, it's actually just to go back to this conversation for a second, I think it's really important to think about um, altering telomeres in a preventive context is somewhat different than um, altering telomeres in an active cancer. Right. Because, you know, the role is very different, et cetera. So um, in uh, in a preventive context, you know, there are actually a lot of factors that were very clear will up or down regulate telomerase. And in doing that, will will clearly influence the length of telomeres. Um, you know, one of which, just to, to kind of start off the conversation, is just very basic lifestyle. Um, going, starting as basic as you can get with diet. Mm-hmm. Um, there, it, it's very clear that a Mediterranean style diet increases telomere length. And this has been shown in several 
prospective, big, large, you know, clinical trials. There's one uh, that came out of this, the Nurses' Health Study, which is a very large study of um, many thousand, over 100,000 nurses, and they took a subset of these women, over 30,000 of them, who they got, got blood samples from, were able to measure their telomeres, correlated their telomere length with their diet pattern, and they found that those women who ate as closely as possible to the Mediterranean diet, so high plant, whole food, unprocessed food type of diet, had the longest telomeres um, quite significantly, uh, more than those women who were far away from the Mediterranean diet. Right. And that's just, you know, that's super basic, but that's a good starting point for sure, is just to think about the impact of days and decades of eating healthfully and what that's doing to our telomeres. Hmm. But um, there were also some very good data out of with exercise, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exercise is another one. There's, uh, it's very clear that regular physical activity increases telomere length, and when you combine uh, ex- regular exercise, healthy diet, not smoking, uh, maintaining, you know, basically healthy body weight, uh, you can increase. To, uh, telomere length by like 30% over controls or over any other combination. So it's kind of a the synergy of all these things together is more impactful than any one thing alone. Yeah. Um, but exercise for sure, diet for sure, those would be, I would say, the sort of two kind of baselines, if you will. And then actually, interestingly, there's some, Dean Ornish has done some really interesting studies on uh, telomerase upregulation through various lifestyle interventions and has also made the case that uh, stress is a really good way to shorten your telomeres uh, prematurely and that meditation and mindfulness and even just simple breathing exercises, social support, anything we can do to decrease stress has the opposite effect, increases the length of our telomeres. Gotcha. So so what's interesting to me is like there was the initial – dietary or caloric restriction studies, and they, they worked really well in rhesus monkeys, didn't really transmate, translate to humans. And I wonder if stress was one of the factors there because it was a change. But but what I, I seemed, I, I don't know, I keep on pondering on this, and that is the Mediterranean diet. That, that is the true Mediterranean diet eaten by Mediterranean people um, is a very social interaction. And I wonder if part mm-hmm. of this caloric restriction is because a mealtime thing is a very social interaction where people are talking and discussing certain things. And when you're talking and discussing things and, you, um, you know, I made the flippant remark in a podcast the other day that, um, you know, if you're talking with your hands, then you can't, you can't pick up the knife and fork to eat. And, so, <laughs> and so, so part of it is sort of inadvertent caloric restriction. Um, and so what that allows is the hunger hormones to take their place and to to uh, work on satiety. So therefore, therefore, you've got this automatic caloric restriction. Where does that fit? Yep. <laughs> is Do you think that's part of the answer that Dean Ornish might be finding or do you think it's a different issue that he's looking at? No, I mean, I think you're on to something. I, you know, I don't know that that's been studied per se, but it sure makes a lot of sense. Um, there's been several studies that have definitely linked stress and in particular depression to shorter telomere length. So right. we know that mood and affect and, you know, I would certainly, to your point, 
say that the, the manner and the mood with which we eat yeah. um, is going to have a pretty important role to play. And it even gets more interesting because actually um, the uh, the mood state of your mother influences your, you know, you as a child, your future mood behavioral issues in part by the way in which her mood, like particularly, let's say a mother is depressed and she's pregnant, her depression, her, her children that are increased risk for having short telomeres, um, and those children are also at an increased risk of having various behavioral disorders, uh, and, you know, specifically something called oppositional defiant behavior disorder that, you know, being neither here nor there, the point being that there's a bit of a generational or epigenetic effect that happens. So I think that's a whole other area. Cause if you think too about the Mediterranean diet, that's also a multi-generational pattern of eating and, and not just the foods, but the way in which foods are eaten. Just two words, do not. <laughs> Sorry, doing that oppositional thing, I couldn't resist. <laughs> so so yeah, apart from the basics, and, and I've got to say, I tend to, looking at the evidence now, I've got to say, I tend to sort of stratify. I know they're very closely linked, but I tend to stratify exercise above diet um, with regards to cancer support. And there were some, just some recent things that I, I learnt about, indeed some exciting Australian research where they're looking at specific exercises for specific types of cancer um, to alleviate risk factors of therapy, like, for instance, jumping with prostate cancer to alleviate the bone, bone loss from the, the um, androgen uh, blockers. Um, and... Um, you know, it was better than just resistant exercise on its own. So I tend to sort of go, well, it's easier to try, try and get somebody to initiate an exercise regime than to, than to change long ingrained dietary habits. Not saying they're not important, but I thought as a number one thing, I'd go exercise and then diet. But you've got a lot more experience than I on helping people change. So what? how do you stratify exercise and diet and then other things? Well, keeping this focus specifically on telomeres, if that's my goal, then um, I think that I would actually put something else above both exercise and diet, which I'll tell you in a moment. Yeah. Maybe in suspense for just a sec. But, <laughs> um, you know, with, with regards to cancer, I 100% agree. I often will say if I was put on a desert island and I could only take one cancer prevention tool with me, I would take exercise because right. it is by far the most impactful way to reduce risk. And now we know that it's never too late to start. People who are diagnosed with cancer who exercise will reduce their risk of dying from their cancer, will improve their health and vitality throughout the treatment for cancer. I mean, it's just so impactful at every step. Yeah. And yeah. We also know it doesn't mean you have to go to a gym, you know, any kind of exercise, any kind of movement throughout the day counts. So it's just a really doable strategy mm. to your point. Mm. And, I, and, and also, uh, yeah. it doesn't have to be a task. You know, I, I saw, and forgive me, this was a TV program, so it was one of those N equals one type things. But uh, one of the best improvements that they found was dancing. So I think this is the perfect mm. excuse for older people to dance like wobblies. Um, and, you know, much to the chagrin of my children when my wife and I, you know, dance around the room in our, our 1980s, 90s dance moves. 
<laughs> and they say they just look at us with disdain. But I think this is the perfect excuse because it's movement. It's not just a, a, a restricted sort of movement on one plane. It's movement. So That's a, Yeah, absolutely, 100% right. And after all that dancing, you're going to be tired. So the big, I yes. think the most impactful thing on telomere length is sleep right. or sleep deprivation. I mean, it just does a number on our telomeres. So, I, you know, I think it's just, I can't emphasize enough how important sleep is. And I actually, the more I've, I've become very self-aware of, of sleep because it's uh, an area of my own health that I'm still learning how to make better. Mm. Uh, that being said, my sensitivity has really also made me aware of, uh, you know, ask all my patients about it. I spend a little more time talking with them about it. And boy, sleep is a big issue for most people. Most of us are not getting nearly enough. And when we do get into bed, we don't sleep well. That's so right. So we are just, I think, increasingly a sleep-deprived culture has huge, huge implications on yeah. our health, our cancer risk, and, yeah, telomeres really suffer. Yeah. And this is why, like, you know, you and I have spoken about L-theanine before. Um, I'm a big fan of magnesium. And it's it's almost like it's not a panacea. It's not a it will work in everybody. But I just think there's so many people that have issues with sleep, with restful sleep rejuvenating sleep. And I think we need to change that vernacular. It's not sleep. Everybody sleeps. It's just for how long and how much rest they get during that. Um, but I think this restful, peaceful sleep um, is something that we really need to work on. Yeah, and, there's, uh, and yes, I agree. And I, I like magnesium for another reason too, which is that as we start to understand how it is that these lifestyle behaviors ultimately translate into shortening our telomeres. The, the sort of mitigating um, process is oxidative stress. So yep. that you know, the more oxidative stress that occur in our cells, the more likely our telomeres enzyme is down-regulated and then our telomeres shorten. And this has a lot to do with mitochondrial <clears throat> health and functionality. And I think that when you think about sleep, one of the biggest problems when we don't get enough sleep is that we don't give ourselves the time under the influence of melatonin to restore our endogenous antioxidants, to do the repair we need to, to mitigate all that oxidative stress that's accumulated over the day. So we just, we're always kind of trying to catch up. And so magnesium, to your point, uh, and actually theanine to some extent as well, you know, it's so important to mitochondrial health and to giving ourselves the nutrient, you know, one of the nutrients it needs to help restore that glutathione system. So I think there's, you get kind of a two for one with magnesium in this respect. Yeah. Well, so let's look at the, the poster child of any sort of cancer support, and that'd be curcumin from turmeric. Um, is there any facility of turmeric with telomeres? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. To my knowledge, that has not been directly studied, but I could surmise that there's a connection because, as you know, hopefully most of uh, the listeners know, curcumin is really good at down-regulating NF-kappa-B, the major inflammatory regulator in the cell, and, and conversely, up-regulating NERF-2, which is uh, involved in increasing our endogenous antioxidant production. So NERF2 upregulation helps just literally turns on genes that make glutathione peroxidase and things like that. 
So uh, one would surmise then that under the influence of curcumin, we would have a we'd have better ability to control oxidative stress, and in doing that, to preserve our telomerase. So that's all theoretical. To my knowledge, that hasn't been directly studied, mm-hmm. but I would boy, I would sure lay money on the fact that that's happening. Yeah, and I I have to ask, what about these supplements that are sort of popping up, I've got to say, normally in the US market, it would be illegal in Australia to make a claim like this, but you're getting these, uh, you know, telomere type supplements. They're sort of targeted for telomeres. Do you think that's really um, applicable yet? Do you think we can say that? Or do you think that's really more of a, a a bit of a wild claim and we really need to be looking at, you know, diet and lifestyle things and some basic type of support mechanisms, which, you know, I'm going to say the word antioxidant. I'm, I'm not a big fan of this, you know, hero electron trapper. Um, but um, that anti-inflammatory type nutrition. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's a good question because um, there is a huge movement in the States in fact, there's even a big association of of doctors that are about what's so-called is anti-aging. So the idea being that if we can find ways to reduce the primarily the oxidative stress and uh, preserve you know vital organelle function within the cells, then maybe we can actually extend our life. And there's and that's based on some good science. You know, just sleep if you sleep good eight hours a night, most of your life, you're going to live on average, I think it's about three and a half years longer than your neighbor who's not sleeping well. Um, so there's definitely, you know, things, data points along the way. From a supplement perspective, there's a lot of, uh, I would categorize it as theoretical or very early clinical studies. Mm-hmm. There are clinical studies on nutrients like resveratrol is a popular one in this regard, or fish oil, uh, essential fatty acids, or green tea that you mentioned, and um, these things have been, you know, often studied in vitro and in animals and shown to have impact on telomerase. And uh, some, as I said, a very few handful of clinical studies indicate that there's benefit uh, in humans, but there's not been any long-term studies, and we're talking about long-term life Mm -hmm. extension. So we really can't say for sure that this does that. you know, so I think for me, it's like, okay, so we have all these different opportunities to take supplements. I think we have to consider uh, what other benefits would this particular combination or ingredient provide for me? And are there any risks to taking this? And do, do kind of a benefit risk analysis. And if it comes out in favor of benefit at this point, I think it's probably likely to be a benefit. Yeah. Fact. Yeah, I, but I, I guess my point was I think there are benefit for other reasons and we can't yet say that it's because of telomeres. I think the, the claim of telomeres is a little bit premature, but the other benefits, yeah, sure. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. But I think sleep, restful, peaceful sleep, um, you know, with, with uh, a, a, let's say, a well-practiced sleep hygiene. It, it sounds such a weird term, sleep hygiene, but anyway. Um, yeah, um, but you know, some good, um, sleep practices, uh, along with good exercise that involves natural movement and expression of movement, including dancing. And then obviously the social interaction with a healthful, well-balanced Mediterranean style diet. I think those three would be the top ones that we'd have, you know, I mean, we can institute those without any supplements being imbibed at all, can't we? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's clearly, I would agree with you. That's the foundation. And then I think adding into that um, kind of a, a de-stressing something or other, you know, I mean, this fascinating stuff, but also there's a, a study that I remember uh, reading about people who were depressed, who I think it was a study of women, but women who were depressed, but who also had high resilience. So they had kind of more greater ability to bounce back from difficult events and to sort of feel depressed, but then to reemerge and see the positive. Those women didn't have shortened telomeres, whereas the women who were depressed that didn't have as much resilience did have shorter telomeres. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah, just another example. Yeah, I think that there's the basics are so critical if you just look at cell health from the perspective from the lens of telomeres. It really does come down to good food, good rest, good movement, and good mood. (laughs) Yeah, good food, good movement, good mood. We could, I'm sure we can make an acronym somewhere <laughs> out of that. <laughs> I'll need to sleep on it. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, and I, but I do think, you know, and I don't want to just also, you know, completely pass over the potential role of supplementation because I do believe that the world that we live in is tremendously oxidatively stressful hmm. and you know, I think it's hard to, it's it's just hard given all the demands that we've put on ourselves uh, to expect that people can, you know, really eat well all the time, sleep well most of their life, get exercise most days. I mean, that's what we want, and that's absolutely what we should strive to help every person that we encounter to do. And at the same time, I think that there's so much active stress coming our way from the environment, from, you know, weird things that are found in our foods, even healthy foods, from um, household products, from just the stress of being doers rather than beers. And mm. I think that over time, uh, that kind of wears down our ability to compensate. So I do feel like there is a role for targeted nutritional supplementation Absolutely. for some of these people just to kind of give them that extra edge and, uh, try to facilitate what all those lifestyle changes are encouraging and building. Mm, totally agree. Totally agree. Um, what I find interesting, though, is like when we're looking at um, curcumin, um, yes, absolutely. It, you know, it is my favorite supplement, I've got to say. Um, but you can also do a lot with dietary intake just by adding it to things like stir, stir fries. And you can add and add and add and add and stir and add and add. You can, you can put in a really hefty dose of, of turmeric into a stir fry meal, um, you know, keeping it, keeping it nice and safe with some good oils and things like that, um, some garlic. So yeah. I think this, this co-management, if you like, supplements don't have to be all a plate of tablets. You know, they can be a plate of food, good healthy food, ta- almost targeted food with some judiciously added supplements along the side. Yeah, and I think that maybe this is another opportunity where we can think about using these, uh, in this case, curcumin or turmeric in different doses at different times because... Ooh. You know, if we're incorporating it into our diet, mm-hmm. we would think, okay, we're going to get a lot of different, very vari- variety of actions from curcumin, the net effect of which tends to be an anti-inflammatory sort of antioxidative one. Yeah. Interestingly, when uh, we look at, you know, there's all no clinical trials on this, but when we look at in vitro 
cellular studies, we know that when we apply high doses of curcumin to tumor cells, it actually uh, decreases telomerase and shortens telomeres in cancer cells. So might that be a dose effect? Or maybe, like we see in a lot of other instances, compounds have a differential effect on a healthy cell compared to a malignant cell just because of the different characteristics in those cells. Yeah. But I think it does sort of, you know, makes me scratch my head and think, huh, I wonder if perhaps just from a big generalization perspective, maybe it makes sense to think about turmeric in the diet for prevention. And then when we're really dealing with a malignancy, maybe we have to sort of step it up a bit. Salient words. So to wrap it all up, the telomerase issue, um, where should we focus? We, I think we've discussed the sleep, the exercise, the food. What what do you tell patients with regards to okay, do you, like do you test for telomerase or telomeres? Do you actually actively test for those in yeah. your patients? It's a yeah, it's a really good question, and I've struggled a bit with this because there are tests available. So what we know is that there are, you know, the telomere link in your white blood cells are a little are going to be different than the telomere link in your colon cells or in your, you know, epi, you know, cheek cells. Mm. So where do we test? Mm. Um, most telomer testing is done on blood, white blood cells, and that's because those are easily accessible and they're important because they signify immunity. Um, and so it's really become kind of the standard when we're looking at human clinical studies and just how to go forward. But we still don't know really how well that correlates with telomere length in especially tissues that are uh, in organs that are under high proliferation stress, yeah, that's what which I was happens to be the site of all major cancers, right? Because it's digestive tract, colon cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer. And uh, that's where we really want to make sure our telomeres are nice and long and healthy. And is that test really telling us that? We don't know for sure. So there's a little bit of a question mark in my mind about, therefore, the utility of doing that test. Um, I think, though, if, if, if our main question is, okay, is this person um, healthy from an immunological perspective, and do they have kind of a robust uh, immune system? One part of that answer might be to assess their telomere length. And I think in that case, those tests, as I said, are very easy to do and very readily available to practitioners now. Um, and you can see changes. When you then the only you know real reason to do that would be to if it's going to motivate the patient or motivate you to focus on certain strategies that you then want to remeasure the impact of. So I think you could do it again yeah. and see if what you're doing actually made a difference. Um, but having said all that, I actually don't test very often for the reasons I just said, and I tend to think you know what. I'm going to recommend a good diet and more sleep and more movement anyway. Yeah, treatment so remains the, the same. Unless the patient's really needing some, yeah, so unless they're really needing some objective, motivating kind of, you know, piece of paper that will show benefit, I probably would just bypass the test and just go for the, the strategy. Yeah. I, I wonder if maybe, you know, obviously if there's going to be a, a, a willing oncologist um, who's doing a biopsy, whether it be a fine needle or a core biopsy or a, an excision of a tumour, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, if, if it was were able to test the actual tumour um, at, say, several sites and look at the telomeres 
what they were doing there, yeah. then maybe that might give a, you know, a better picture of potential risk. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's I, I think there's a lot that's going to happen in the future with regards to what we what we do with those samples of tumors that we get out because mm. this is just one of many things that you know, particularly if we learn that we can reliably downregulate telomerase in malignant cells by targeting TERT or something else, and that becomes, and we have a strategy to do that, then it's going to lead very much to let's see what's going on with telomerase in a cancer cell so we know if it's a target. And I think this is part of a whole, you know, oncology is evolving to this molecular profiling of tumors and genomic and molecular profiling of tumors, which will become the way we understand tumors. Yeah. To the point, I was on a panel recently, and uh, one of the physicians said something really interesting, which I'll repeat, uh, which he said, you know, in the future, it's very likely that we, won't, we will no longer talk about breast cancer and prostate cancer, colon cancer. We're just going to talk about it. It won't matter where the tumors came from yeah. or where they grew. What's going to matter is what is unique about the genomic and the molecular profile of this tumor and what array of therapies will best target this tumor. And I think that's the future of oncology. So mm. this, I think, is one piece of that sort of mosaic that we'll eventually see, hopefully in our lifetimes. You know what? I, I actually hope that happens because that will take out a lot of the dogma. I'm going to say the word sexism, but that's not right. But the but but the sex discrimination between different types of cancers, breast versus prostate, for instance, you know, colon cancer, it's something that's up your bottom, so we don't want to talk about it. There's these weird um, dogmas that exist because of you know it's it might not be in a nice area, um, or it might have something to do with your gender. Um, so I, I actually look right. forward to that day. Yeah, I do too, because I also think that it, it sort of levels the playing field about. Um, it gets us out of these ruts of okay for first stage breast cancer the you know the regimen is to use yep. you know cytoxin taxi right. care times four blah 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 and it's like okay what does this person's tumor Too where many. are the vulnerabilities in Where's this particular person's tumor yeah. Absolutely. Lise, I, I I love your wealth of knowledge. It's 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 so broad but also so deep. <laughs> we can just dive into any area with regards to especially cancer because that's obviously your passion with helping people but even the nuances that go alongside that you know the anxiety and the sleep and things like that i love discussing these things because you give practical things that practitioners can use in their patients tomorrow and you also keep in mind that it's the patient that we are caring for and I just, i got to say, I bow to you. I love you. You're an amazing lady. So thank you so much for joining us once wow. again on FX Medicine. Well, my pleasure. You bring out the best in us, Andrew. Thank you. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex, and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.